Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Fintech Show, CityWire's podcast looking at technology and wealth advice and beyond. Uh, this time, we're going to explore the world of fintech investing, and I'm absolutely honored to be joined by Tim Levine, CEO of Augmentum Fintech. Uh, for those who don't know, Augmentum became the first publicly traded fintech-focused VC company in the UK in March of 2018. Uh, Tim has a mightily impressive CV as well. Uh, before founding Augmentum, he founded the Juice Bar Fresh and Smooth, uh, which now has over 30 locations in, in London alone, and it's now known under the name Crush. You may have had those smoothies. Uh, he was also the commercial director of Betfair, uh, which he helped to launch globally. Uh, Tim was also made a young global leader by the World Economic Forum in 2012, and for several years he advised the Royal Foundation of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry on digital strategy and innovation. So, Tim, welcome to the FinTech Show. Um, obviously, your career spanned several interesting genres. So, my first question is why fintech and what made you decide to launch, uh, launch sorry, Augmentum? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, it's always interesting when uh, someone uh, talks through a potted history of your career, uh, which has been quite varied. And I must say, I've, I've reinvented uh, myself a, a few times. And I think the gravitation towards fintech, which Certainly when, uh, you know, I was thinking about financial services in the, as an industry that had been very slow to disrupt back in 2009. It was really when we um, launched uh, Flutter, which was, uh, I guess, the precursor to Betfair, and those two businesses came together uh, back in 2001. And I think that really opened my eyes to uh, an industry that was incredibly old fashioned, where incumbents were very resistant to change. And I think if you look at the history of Betfair and how they have become uh, the FTSE 100 business that it, that it is today, um, that was really helped by a lack of uh, engagement and recognition from those incumbents back in the uh, early noughties that disruption and technology was going to fundamentally change their industry. Um, and I think I saw a lot of similarities in financial services back in 2009, where incumbents were... Uh, to be fair, not loved uh, largely by consumers, post-financial crisis, hadn't embraced technology. And the UK in particular was uh, very much a centre of gravity, similar to what we saw in the betting industry. And we weren't seeing a huge amount of innovation coming out of the valley. Um, and I think that's for good reason, because we are talking about an industry that is heavily regulated, uh, is a lot more complicated uh, than many others, uh, and is not necessarily... Uh, something that, uh, you know, a 21-year-old sitting in their shed or garage in the valley can sit there and say, hey, I want to disrupt the asset management industry. So I think there's a lot of good reasons as to why the impending that disruption was near. The question is, how could, uh, you know, how could we tackle it? How can I be relevant? I don't have a background uh, in financial services per se. And so it was really an opportunity to go away and think about where that, uh, you know, where that disruption might, uh, might come. And back in 2009, fintech really wasn't a word. It's just evolved over the past seven or eight years uh, as very much a buzzword. And now is you know, the name that we refer to what is a very significant industry. Yeah, so it seems to me the constant theme is disruption, spotting, you know, things aren't being done as efficiently or as well as they could be, uh, and then capitalising on that. I have to completely miss the point for a second, though, Tim. Why smoothies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, 
Yeah, it's a bit of a uh, a bit of a kind of disconnect from what I was doing previously. I was actually working with the Bain & Company, the strategy consulting firm. I'd been uh, I studied Russian at university, and I uh, moved to Moscow in the early nineties and uh, was working with Bain. And we were doing a lot of um, the privatization work uh, that the Russia, then Russian government, the Yeltsin government, had uh, embarked upon. Um, and uh, my job eventually took me to uh, to work in Sydney uh, with Bain there, and I think that really kind of uh, opened my eyes to what was um, uh, quite an interesting idea. And I kind of left uh, Sydney, having uh, become somewhat addicted to kind of healthy juices and smoothies, and wondered whether there was a, a market in the UK. And I and I think the kind of conclusion was if we could anglicise the concept. Uh, because we don't quite have the uh, the Sydney climate here in the UK, although today it was uh, pretty uh, pretty nice, um, and so you know that was very much the catalyst to thinking to create what was uh, one of the first propositions that sold you know high quality but fast uh, and healthy uh, food, uh, whether it's smoothies, juices, soups, uh, wraps, and. Uh, yeah, it feels like a long time ago. And, um, you know, our first store was in Canary Wharf uh, at the base of the tower when Canary Wharf was a little bit of an oasis and there wasn't much there. Um, and I definitely got my first real business lesson when uh, about three months before the store was opening and I'd sunk pretty much every penny of my savings into it. I was told that the Jubilee Line extension where I was situated was going to be delayed by 12 months. And so the natural footfall that I was expecting would not uh, be there. So we managed to uh, renegotiate a, a rental deal with Canary Wharf at the time. It was, I think, such an oasis there that uh, consumers just sought us out and found us. And we were quite differentiated. And we managed to, um, uh, to open the store and trade uh, profitably. Uh, excuse, uh, excuse the dog uh, in the background. Um, and um, yeah, I think the rest is history. But I, I think the challenge that that business really taught me, and certainly the first kind of 12 months, was how difficult it was to run a real business. I think I had a distorted view uh, of business being uh, a management consultant and advising um, you know, back in the equivalent of FTSE 100 businesses. But then you really learn what depreciation and cash flow is when you're running a store and you've put every penny of your, your savings in it. So that was a great life lesson. Uh, lots of learnings, um, but a lot of fun and certainly held me in good stead for, uh, for what I did in the future. Yeah, and I actually love the idea that you can anglicize a smoothie bar uh, without sticking Bisto in it. So that's quite good. Um, <laughs> but, but Tim, I, I should probably get onto the current day. Um, obviously, you're now running Augmentum and you're looking at the very cutting edge of fintech investing. Um, and you've, you've got a reasonably broad portfolio of investments. But what I want to ask you is, uh, of all the things that you've got, all those holdings that you have, um, you know, which one are you most excited about uh, and why? Yeah, it, it often uh, it often depends which day of the week you uh, you ask me that question because I think the portfolio goes through uh, peaks and troughs. Um, uh, you know, I know having kind of been an entrepreneur for many years, it's a bit of a roller coaster uh, of uh, of experiences and emotions. Um, I think what we've always tried to do are back businesses that are truly doing something differentiated and making consumer. Um, you know, the consumer proposition far easier and ultimately far more 
uh, digitally enabled uh, and hopefully cheaper as well. So I think everything that we've done uh, and all the businesses that, that we've backed today have been businesses that you know, we in the team are really passionate about. Uh, and I think that makes a huge difference. Um, ultimately, if you ask me uh, today, I mean, often you are most excited about the business that is earlier in its journey because there's a huge amount of potential ahead of it. You're not yet clear exactly how it's going to play itself out. Um, and there is a lot of learning for that uh, founder or founding management team to, uh, to, to go on. And you feel that you can be a part of that journey. And I think we have the greatest impact as an investor at that Series A or, or, or B stage. Um, so I think if I, you know, if I could point to a couple of businesses that um, you know, are really you know, making real headway at the moment. One is a business called Farewell. Um, which is in the, you know, what we would define as digital desk services. And so you are right to ask, how is that fintech? And I think there's a lot of tangential financial services around uh, the subject of debt, which is a you know, hard area and hard topic to, uh, to debate and discuss and for some to get excited about. But it is the biggest financial event of one's life. Um, and you know, 75% or so of UK adults don't have a will. The probate process is extraordinarily convoluted, time-consuming, uh, paper-based, uh, and of course, um, the uh, you know the post uh, you know probate exercise. There will be a trillion pounds transfer of wealth over the coming years, moving from one generation to another. And I think there is a really big opportunity to digitise that whole experience, uh, to reduce the friction, to reduce the cost. Um, to de, you know, to, to really kind of demystify that, and I think that's a business that has an exceptionally strong and talented and young uh, management team who are, you know, making great headway in that space. And frankly, when you look at the competitive market, really, you're talking about the likes of Co-op or Dignity, who are very traditional, um, low-tech incumbents. To be perfectly blunt, and I think there's a big uh, opportunity for for that business to uh, to explore and to exploit. And I guess the, the other uh, business at the moment, which is very fresh in the mind, uh, is a business called Cushion. Um, it is a, a workplace uh, pensions and uh, ISA platform. And I think that's an area which we think has been very underrepresented by digitized propositions. We've seen a lot of these B2C uh, digital pension platforms, whether it's a, a pension B or a smart pension or, a, or even a nutmeg or money box. And I think, you know, although... Um, you know, they're, they're very kind of good products. They've been, uh, there's been a long journey for those businesses to build out that customer base, to build those assets under, uh, under management. And they've been quite marketing uh, heavy as well. I think there is definitely uh, an opportunity for a B2B to see proposition to come out there, roll up a significant number of employers and really kind of work with the, uh, the employees to offer them um, you know, very compelling, uh, cost effective, uh, you know, zero, uh, zero carbon as well, uh, pension propositions, as well as kind of creative uh, and low cost saving propositions as well, which I think the, the industry is, is short of choice there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I think a lot of the time when people think of, of fintech or technology, they assume it's its own specific sector, which it, it sort of is. But it, it really seems to me that it's about automating or digitizing or making things easier in any kind of part of life, any any kind of thing that you do. So it's interesting to see such a range of things there. You're looking at pensions, you're looking at, you know, death tech, as some people call it. It, it really can be anything. Uh, so what I'd like to ask now is, you know, you're experienced in this, you've invested in lots of different 
tech companies. And I think loads of our listeners will, will find this interesting and, and probably want to do the same as well. Um, at the same time, you know, venture capital is is risky business, right? So some some stats that I was looking at recently from um, this from the, the Global Startup Ecosystem Report from Startup Genome. It found that about 10 out of 11 startups fail without ever generating a return. And that changes to 75% uh, failing when there's venture capital backing it. So even the ones that are backed are generally failing quite a lot. So what are the traits that a fintech firm needs to have uh, for you to invest in it? And also, do those numbers kind of, you know, do you find those relatable numbers to what you're doing in the fintech space? Mm, I would say, I mean, it very much depends on the stage you're investing. Uh, and I think those numbers uh, will reduce, uh, of course, the later you invest and when you see the first signs of product market fit. Um, you know, we are not a pre-seed uh, or C-stage uh, investor per se. And as such, we would not expect uh, anywhere near those uh, uh, failure rates. Um, so it doesn't surprise me, one, uh, that venture capital businesses versus pure angel-backed businesses have a lower failure rate because I think, you know, capital is, uh, is incredibly important. And many businesses uh, run out of runway before they can kind of prove out their model. But ultimately, you're right to, to say that this, you know, it is a risky business. And I think that is the challenge in particular for the retail investor as well as the institutional investor, because there is a huge amount of innovation in, uh, in this industry going on at the moment. Um, there is more capital than ever before. It's never been easier to raise capital um, to uh, launch a proposition. But ultimately, um, you know, you need to have a proposition that one, consumers uh, either uh, you know or, or businesses want to want to use to the unit economics of your your proposition uh, stacks up um, and there is a, what we would define as a you know a lifetime value that ultimately can return the investment alongside you're targeting a market opportunity that is big and meaningful enough to build a really valuable business uh, and that is very much the name of the game I think when we look at our portfolio currently which uh, numbers 21, we do not expect or anticipate that all 21 are going to be rocket ship success stories. We'd love them to be that way, but that's just not realistic. And you've got to be prepared to one, take risk and two, uh, fail along the way. Three, you've got to be prepared to continue to back those businesses that are showing positive signs, but equally step away uh, when it's clear that the businesses uh, that you're backing that aren't quite delivering, and if they aren't delivering uh, for good reasons, then you don't throw good money after bad. And there are, there are often uh, you know, decisions along the way that are very difficult because you are very committed, very passionate about a business that you back. But for a number of reasons, it might not uh, turn out as you hope. And I think that's as important as being an investor, where you're prepared to step away, uh, stop investing uh, and look to put your energies and capital elsewhere that can uh, deliver a return. So I think, you know, those, those would be kind of some of the some of the factors and characteristics. But ultimately, it is about backing and believing in an exceptional management team. Uh, it's not just uh, about packing a single a single founder. I would say the vast majority of the of the opportunities and, and business ideas that we engage in are fundamentally, you know, very good ideas. They're trying to solve a problem. Um, that uh, you know, consumers or businesses uh, you know, are experiencing uh, and that require digitization. 
Um, but 95% of it then, you know, once you've identified that, is, you know, in the execution. And you are reliant on a, uh, on a team that has, it's not just about being good, it's, it's about being extraordinary. And I think it's those extraordinary teams that can really execute on a plan and uh, allow a business to fulfill its potential. Uh, and even if you have all of that, that's not necessarily enough as well. So it's it's a hard it's a hard one to to find that uh, that needle in a haystack. And as I said, hopefully we have one or two that really do become those exceptional uh, uh, rocket ships, uh, and a number of others that re- you know also uh, you know are what we regard as you know really successful as well and can help drive a return for investors. So so Tim, it's a, it's a really good point you make around management and leadership. Uh, and I suppose my, my question relating to that is quite an obvious one, which is how do you identify the, 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 you know, the right leadership teams, the right management teams? I mean, you look at, you know, a basic example would be Dragon's Den, right? You can see when someone walks in and you can spot a blagger. Well, it seems like you can spot a blagger probably because of how well they edit the, the stuff. But still, how do you tell the difference between, you know, good and excellent leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it often is... Um is very much driven uh, at first by by that initial pitch um, because ultimately, as I said, it's not good enough to believe in the proposition and in the solution that the business is trying to, uh, uh, to, to solve for. It is about a management team, a founder, bringing that, uh, bringing that problem and solution to life and articulating very effectively how they intend to execute on that. Um, and I think if you can't sell your vision to an investor, whether it's a VC or, a, or an angel or, or, or someone else, then it's very hard to see how you can translate that to selling it to your team, uh, to prospective customers as well. Um, and so although, uh, you know, people who can, you know, who, who can commercialize or who can black, that is still an important skill, but that's not enough on its own. And I think we'll always talk about what is the optimal uh, what are the optimal characteristics of a team that you would you would want to see if you could kind of create your dream team of capabilities um, for a early stage business? What would you want to see in that room? And I'd love to see kind of three diverse founders, uh, you know, one who could truly sell uh, the vision and can commercialize and has the vision of uh, how we can scale. Secondly, someone who can really kind of productize uh, the proposition as well, who has, you know, a, you know, a a maniacal focus on the product, on ensuring that, you know, the the customer, the end customer has a product that is, uh, is truly what they want uh, and can evolve it over time. And then someone who really has that kind of engineering technical DNA uh, that understands what it takes to, you know, scale a digital proposition as well. And I think if you can bring all those characteristics to bear, then you have the ingredients of, uh, of a team that uh, has what it takes. And then, you know, comes the hard work. Um, and, you know, then, then you do see how people scale. Uh, and I think, you know, part of the challenge uh, of a lot of uh, businesses that grow and grow very quickly is can, can that early management team continue to evolve and step up um, on the journey as well? Because not everybody uh, you know, wants or has the capability to be the right person at every stage of the company's life. Yeah, and I'm assuming you see some interesting uh, demographics in, you know, in business leadership with the companies you're working with, probably quite a lot of younger people as well. So, so 
how do you kind of make up for that lack of experience or the lack of you know big names on your CV if you don't have them? Do, do you ever invest in companies that are ran by people who are relatively green? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, there there are a number of um, companies in the portfolio where, I mean, I would say the majority where the founders are first time founders and. Uh, you know, they haven't been CEOs or scaled businesses before. Um, now, of course, if you can find second, third time founders who have had hugely successful journeys, that's, uh, you know, that that's uh, fantastic too. But I think there are, you know, many, there is many a success story uh, in, in the Valley in particular of first time founders, you know, building out hugely successful businesses. And, you know, we can point to many of those kind of big digital names uh, that we know, uh, and uh, and sometimes love that, that have done that. Um, so I think that doesn't necessarily spook me. Um, you know, ultimately, I think in fintech, I think if you looked at the stats, you'd probably see a higher average age uh, of, a, of a founder, largely because financial services, as we talked a little bit earlier, often is riddled with regulatory complexity um, or requires, you know, quite a lot of experience from within financial services if you are trying to improve, uh, you know, what is kind of a complicated um, uh, business. So I, I think you will definitely see the average, um, you know, above the uh, above the norm. But notwithstanding that, I mean, I can point back to, um, you know, to both Cushion and Fairwell, two businesses I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, Cushion founder is uh, is in his early 30s uh, when he started that business uh, and Fairwell, uh, Dan Garrett and uh, and Tom would be in their 20s. Uh, and so uh, what I would say is, you know, they uh, complement each other incredibly well, very high intellect, extraordinarily hardworking um, and totally passionate about the uh, problem that they're trying to solve uh, and have recognized that they need to build a great team around them, which is, which is what they're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously the standouts you'll remember, but how many companies pitch to you in a typical year, Tim? Yeah, that's um, a good question, actually. I'm not, um, I, I've got to probably look at our stats. I mean, what I would say is we would have you know, hundreds, high hundreds, if not more, of um, decks, um, calls, unsolicited emails come in. I think it's quite quick. Uh, it's, it, one can be quite quick in terms of triaging those. We know from our perspective where we want to look, where our thesis is currently, the stage of the companies that we're looking to back, uh, the key metrics that we're looking to identify. So I think you can get a reasonable sense where 70 to 80% of, uh, of that deal flow that comes in you triage quite quickly to say, look, this isn't quite right for us for one or two reasons. Um, so ultimately, you know, you would still, uh, you know, meet a few hundred entrepreneurs uh, you know, across the team in any one year. Um, but I, I think when you are a specialist uh, fund manager and most VCs are generalist, it does allow you to be much more rigorous with one, your thesis and two, your focus. Uh, and when you have clarity of thinking of the key metrics that you're looking for, uh, then it does allow you to be more efficient and map that market, um, you know, quite effectively. But, you know, it is very much, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, ab about finding that uh, needle in a haystack. I mean, you have to meet a lot of founders uh, to find those exceptional management teams that, that you want to back. And even when you do that, you're not always going to get it right. So it's a hard it is a hard industry to uh, to deliver success in. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess there's a, a part of me, a slightly devilish part of me that wants to know the worst case scenario, you know, the kind of cautionary tale. So have you ever been pitched anything, Tim, that was, was genuinely awful? Has anyone ever come up and turned up and said, you know, invest in this and the idea just simply was completely rubbish? I mean, I think there's, there, there probably have been many. I mean, I, I would hope that we've got much better and I've certainly got much better at triaging um, opportunities. So before you take a meeting, um, you should have a pretty good idea that actually the person <laughs> yeah. that you're meeting has a proposition that at least uh, holds, uh, you know, holds reasonable amount of water. I think, you know, there are situations where somebody has picked up the phone to you that you know, who you know quite well and said, look, uh, I've got a friend, a good friend who is launching a fintech business. Uh, and I really appreciate it if uh, if you would spend 20, 30 minutes with them. And uh, I would say those those are the ones where, you know, I have um, uh, returned the returned the favor and uh, and taken that meeting. And, and I have had a quite an interesting meeting once where I did take a meeting somewhat reluctantly and uh, it was an ex-footballer who I won't name, a very well-known ex-footballer who uh, came to the meeting. And actually, I thought the idea held merit where it was to uh, almost securitize the future um, income uh, of a player from a, from a young age. Um, and people can, in effect, buy actual shares in uh, in a sports person's uh, future income, so uh, they can you know, get income up front, and you're betting that actually the uh, sports person that you're going to back is going to end up becoming the next Tiger Woods or the next Ronaldo. Um, and I think what surprised me about that was one, you know, decent idea. Uh, halfway through the meeting, um, a, another even better known footballer. Uh, arrived, knocked on the door, and uh, and sat down. And as far as we can tell, the only role of that footballer was to uh, put some stardust uh, around the idea. Uh, and as I was said, these these were two of the most unbackable, uh, I would say, business people that, <laughs> that I had met. Even though it yeah. was kind of quite fun to sit and uh, and spend most of the meeting talking football. Uh, being a Chelsea fan, uh, you know, uh, I would say long afflicted, although in recent months it's been... Yeah, you've uh, just won the Champions League, you can't say that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it's been, uh, it's been better times in, in recent months. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that was kind of probably the most, uh, the most unusual, having two international uh, former footballers in a room pitching a, a fintech idea, that's, which, that's quite uh, something. suffice to say, never got off the ground. Yeah, amazing. And I think anyone who's followed CityWire for any period of time will know that any kind of investment scheme or any kind of business opportunity involving a footballer genuinely seems to go horribly wrong. So I mean, I can't say it always will, but I've seen far too many headlines uh, along along those lines. Um, so anyway, to, to to move off of that quickly, um, I do have a, another question to ask, which is obviously your own experience. I mean, you you have experience of running a startup business, and you've also been in that position where it, it sounds to me like you might have struggled had it not been for. Uh, you know, a rent arrangement being made, uh, you know, once the Jubilee line failed to open. So how much did your own experience factor in to, to management, you know, decisions? When you're looking at, uh, at people, how much did your own experience kind of guide the type of, you know, guide you towards the people that you invest in? Um, I mean, I think if I go back kind of 20 years when we started Flutter and, you know, the nature of venture capital in the UK was very limited. There were a handful of venture capital funds, of which 
those typically involved were uh, experienced kind of bankers or consultants, but not really entrepreneurs. And I think what we've seen over the past five or six years in particular have been, you know, a lot more entrepreneurial DNA moving into venture. Uh, and there is uh, a fair bit of cynicism in the, in the, I guess, the founder world now that VCs uh, simply uh, always ask, how can I be helpful? Uh, and they'll uh, and the response will be, just give us your money and, uh, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll call you. Um, and I think, you know, that cynicism is well placed in part, but I definitely think now we have a different generation of, of venture investor where there is a lot more hands-on capability. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we are not majority owners of this business. We are backing uh, exceptional management teams to uh, execute the strategy. And our role is to, one, provide capital and identify future capital uh, as and when they need to grow. But also when they pick up the phone uh, and there is an issue or a challenge, that you have the capacity or capability, or at least can point them in the right direction uh, to help them through that challenge. Um, and I think the other role that we need to perform, in particular when you've gone through uh, a journey, uh, certainly such as I have, is to try and anticipate some of those challenges along the way and have those tough conversations before they do become uh, real issues. Um, and I think that's really very much where I would see, you know, our role uh, as an investor. We've got a lot of that, you know, operator entrepreneurial DNA in our investment team. Um, and we spend, you know, a large amount of time with our portfolio companies, you know, trying to preempt some of the issues, trying to talk them through the challenges of scaling, trying to identify where there are talent gaps where there are issues in, you know, in the business and how we can help them you know, solve and think through some of those challenges. But you know, the role of the VC is not to run these businesses day to day. And I think certainly that was a mistake I made early in my evolution as an investor, thinking that I needed to be far more involved and engaged in the businesses that we backed. Uh, and was uh, told quite early on uh, that that was not my role. And so uh, I very much kind of I've learned that. I think I've adapted. Um, I think, uh, you know, I would say if I, if I look at the interaction that I have, you know, with our CEOs and, and with our kind of uh, founders, um, there isn't a day that goes by that my WhatsApp isn't buzzing uh, with messages, you know, uh, asking for a view on something or, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that I help with something else. And so, uh, you know, you can have multiple conversations in a day with a particular founder and then, you know, not engage for, for a couple of weeks. But, you know, I, I think the, the challenge for, you know, for investors is you cannot, if you are going to invest in an early stage, be totally passive. I think trying to adopt a, a spray and pray strategy of if I invest in enough companies, one or two will deliver and I can just sit on my hands and hope for the best uh, is not really the approach that, that we would take. We, we kind of have a very targeted uh, approach. We have a targeted thesis, uh, a number of subsectors within fintech where we want to enhance our exposure or build exposure uh, for the first time uh, and then are looking for you know one two or three businesses in each of those pockets to uh, to back and I think you know once we have that then we feel we've got that kind of diversified and rounded exposure um, that we can you know that we can work with and help uh, you know hopefully help those businesses become successful. Yeah. So, Tim, I've got one last question for you. And I think one thing that's forgotten when a, a fintech succeeds is that usually an, an incumbent's business model is, is hit quite badly, possibly 
uh, an incumbent goes out of business, even when a disruptor comes along. Um, so we, our listeners are primarily wealth managers, financial advisors, um, other people in the investment sector, some within the tech side as well. You know, what should people do to make sure that they're not on the wrong side of this? Because there are all sorts of ways financial services are, you know, are going to evolve and change. How can you make sure that you aren't one of the left behind? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think, um, you know, I have thought long and hard about the wealth management industry, um, about how it can be further disrupted, why it hasn't been more disrupted to date, although I think we're on a, uh, a real path of disruption. And there are a large number of wealth managers that hold stock in Augmentum. So I spend a lot of time uh, interacting with them. And, you know, ultimately, uh, I think every wealth manager needs to recognize that they need to embrace digitization. Um, their customers, their consumers, uh, the underlying investors uh, want information at their fingertips. Uh, they want information in a format that they can digest very quickly. They want transparency and they want to feel that uh, the service that's being provided is giving them uh, value for money as well. And I think the uh, the old-fashioned uh, pure relationship uh, game of, of wealth management uh, has, has evolved. Uh, and if you look at the behavior of the next generation, uh, and if we look at millennials who are starting to really build uh, that wealth base, they want to interact in a very different way. Uh, and I think uh, you know, wealth managers uh, have, to, have to evolve as well. Uh, and I think those that will be successful will be working with platforms where they can offer uh, a kind of digitized seamless experience. Yes, of course, there will be a segment of customers that continue to uh, want to have that personalized service. The question is, what is the delivery of that personalized service uh, need to look like? Um, and I think if you can have uh, a wealth management industry that recognizes that, frankly, uh, people are looking for, for returns, they are looking for value, margins will erode over time, but so will the method of delivery as well. So the, co you know, the cost basis should come down accordingly as well. So I think if you can recognize that uh, and think about the customer uh, of the future, what they're going to be looking for over the next five to 10 years. And I think those are the, uh, the wealth management uh, firms and individuals that can, can remain relevant. I think if you carry on doing exactly what you're doing right now, which if, it, if it's the same thing you've been doing for five, 10 years, uh, then you're going to see your, um, your kind of assets under uh, management uh, erode uh, over time. And there's going to be more consolidation. I, I think there's, there's no question that, uh, you know, that is, uh, that is going to be an inevitable feature. Uh, and I think we'll see some of these big, more, you know, big traditional managers continue to look at the economies of scale uh, and continue to find a way to, uh, to try and kind of digitize their, their infrastructure. But as you know, Ian, one of the challenges that a lot of these traditional wealth managers have is they are stuck in their ways. Uh, their, perhaps their tech stack is either very old or, or non-existent, and it requires a dramatic shift in thinking from the very top and a significant investment uh, and a recognition that perhaps margins are not going to be uh, what they were several years ago. And, and I think had the likes of Labrooks and William Hill and Coral recognised that 20 years ago, then they wouldn't find themselves being you know, marginalized as players. I mean, they had 85% market share of the UK betting industry in, uh, in, in around the late 90s. And 
it didn't take very long for Betfair to be bigger than all three of them and then eventually all three of them put together. So it's, it was a good lesson for me uh, in when incumbents don't uh, look forward, uh, don't embrace technology, don't invest for the future uh, and are perhaps you know, complacent and you know, hopefully the wealth management industry uh, isn't going to kind of follow that lead and, and can recognise that the benefits of time, because this is an industry that's taken much longer to disrupt, uh, you know, can demonstrate that there's there's still time for them to change and evolve. Yeah, and I think that's such a such a good point. Uh, and, and Tim, it's exactly why I find these these fintech conversations interesting. It seems to me that this this really is existential, uh, you know, stuff for a lot of the people that will be listening to the podcast. It's it's you know, how do you improve? And if you don't improve, then the consequences could be quite 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 bad really um but tim look thank you again for joining us today it's been a real pleasure talking to you uh, really great to get your insights um i'm sure we could have gone on but that is that is all we have time for um and speaking of innovation do join me next time where i'll be discussing the future of tech with roger cameras now uh, we'll be looking at a pivotal moment in tech history as well as roger was one of the team at mit who helped develop the ARPANET, which was a precursor to the modern-day internet. Um, Really fascinating stuff on the way, so do join me for that one.